Turn with me in your Bible to James chapter 1. This morning we're going to be in verses 22 through 25. James 1, 22 through 25. You follow along as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard in case it sounds a little different than the version that you have in your hand. <clears throat> Here we read James 1, 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word, or you could read that as just simply be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves or who deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it or continues in it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does." This is God's word to us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we ask that because of your word, which accomplishes its work in us, that you in turn would make your people those who delight to do your word. Help us, Father, to see this as a joy rather than a burden and to see it as freedom rather than hindrance. Make us more like Christ in this respect, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So hearing and doing God's word is what James is comparing and contrasting here in these verses. And let me, let me say something about the way that these verses seem to tie in with the verses that we had last week in verses 19 through 21. It's possible, and some people think, it's possible that 19 through 21 sort of complements in a slightly different way the point that James is making in 22 through 25. So he talks about receiving the word in the, in the passage that we had last week, the previous verses, whereas today he's talking about doing the word. And so what some people think, and it's reasonable, it's, there's nothing wrong with this interpretation, I just think it, it maybe misses the mark just a little bit, is that James is talking about two related but different things, that when he talks about receiving the word, what he's talking about is something like the Christian's attitude towards the scriptures. Right? When they hear it, when they see it, when they read it, how does it strike them? What is their initial sort of soul or heart response to it? Do they welcome it or do they shy away from it? That, that sort of thing. And then he turns in the verses that we have today, in verses 22 through 25, and he's moving from our attitude towards the Word to our action in the Word. All right, so, so those two things. I don't think that that's necessarily the case, though. I don't think that James is trying to separate those two ideas, in part because even when James talks about receiving the Word in the, in the verses that we had last week, there is doing that's involved in the receiving of the word. So when he says in verse uh, 21 that we must put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and in humility receive the word. 
right? So even as we're, quote-unquote, receiving the word, there are things that we're doing in the course of that reception, that, that taking in. So, so I think that probably the way that we ought to understand these verses today is something like a continuation of the previous passage, which is to say that what James is making more clear, he's clarifying for us, what it actually means to truly receive the word. All right? So if you get lost in the details, here's the way that I think we ought to take 19 through 21 and 22 through 25 and put them together. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. And if you were to wonder, what does it mean to truly receive God's word such that it ends up or results in my eternal life, James would go on to say in verses 22 through 25 is, well, those who receive the word live by the word. Or, if you want to frame it negatively, no one can say that they truly have received and accepted God's word if they don't live by it. It just doesn't work that way. Rather, God's word does its work in those of us who believe, and because God's word is at work in us, we then are moved and compelled to work out our faith and fear and trembling. Two things then that we want to see here. Number one, that those who only hear God's word are self-deceived. And number two, that it's those who hear and do God's word who are blessed. Those who only hear God's word are self-deceived, and those who hear and do God's word are the ones who are blessed. We'll probably spend a little bit more time on the first point, on verses 22 through 24, because they, it requires maybe a little bit more explanation or clarifying to, to get the sense of what James is after here. But, but notice right from the start what James does and doesn't say. The problem here in these verses is not that people listen to the Word or even listen to it frequently, often, and regularly. The problem is not hearing the word. The problem is only hearing the word. Right? Our gathering together to hear the word is a good and right thing. It, it is no empty exercise. In part, we could say that one of the reasons that we actually gather is because having heard the word, we're actually doing the word. The word tells us. God tells us in his word to gather together. But the, the point here, the concern, is not people hearing the word as if you can get too much good preaching or teaching. But it's when all you have is hearing. There's nothing that comes after that. There's no life. There's no doing. There's no action. That's what James is warning against. Let me say this, though. I need to say this up front. I'm glad that I remembered it. There is a tendency for some of us to read a passage like this and to present it in sort of a, a, a critical way, right? Almost like you're scolding people. You pathetic people, you listen to all these sermons and stuff, but you never live it out kind of a thing. I don't think that's the tone that, that James has in this passage. I think that James is not meaning this passage to be critical, but to be encouraging. I think James believes and knows 
that these believers that he's writing to are actually living the word out. And what he's trying to do is to solidify or to strengthen them in their faith, their living faith, so that when times are hard, when Christians get tired, when they wonder, is all this worth it? James is here to tell them, yes, it's worth it. Don't retreat, don't pull back, don't become those people who just hear and listen but then sort of go off to a safe little bunker somewhere. But take what you've heard, feed on it, and then live on it. So I want this to be encouraging even if in the encouragement there is something of a challenge, even if in the comfort there is some measure of conviction that comes by way of the word here. So, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. It's an interesting word that James uses here when he talks about deceiving yourself. The only other place that it's used is in Colossians 2 when Paul says that he is writing or that he is telling these Christians these things so that no one would deceive you with persuasive arguments. In other words... What James seems to be concerned about for those people who would hear the word but then do nothing else is the danger that comes with that. That they can, in a sophisticated way, deceive themselves into thinking that their hearing is sufficient. I want to come back to that in a moment because to, to get sort of the, the, the brunt or the full weight of this kind of sophisticated deception that, that James says we're all vulnerable to probably requires us to get a better idea as to what's going on with this person who is just a hearer but not a doer. And in doing that, James gives us an analogy that maybe is not quite as perfect or as tight as what we would like, but it, it serves the point or it serves his purpose. So when he talks about someone who hears the word but doesn't do it, he gives this analogy in verses 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Two things that we, need to, that we need to take note of here. Number one, when James uses this analogy or this illustration to, to describe in more vivid terms what it means to be only a hearer, and he talks about someone who looks at their face in the mirror, most of the time, or at least I know for me, just a casual, brief reading of this passage I assume that what James is talking about when he says it's like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, that the look is just a casual, fleeting, momentary look, right? Like you hold up the mirror to your face, put it down, and then you're done, you walk away. That's not the, that's not the word that James uses. The word that James uses is actually a word that means, that carries the idea of looking at something intently to examine it, to observe it. So this same word that James uses here about a man who looks at his face in the mirror is the same word that shows up in, in Acts chapter 7 when Moses is described as turning aside to go look more closely at the burning bush. 
Kadanael, the word that's used here. It's also the word that the author of Hebrews uses in chapter 3 when he tells his readers and us to consider the Lord Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He doesn't mean any sort of casual consideration or a casual glance at Jesus. He means look on, focus on, meditate on Christ. Therefore, the problem with the hearer of God's Word, as he's being likened to someone who looks in the mirror, is not that there is a simple or a brief or a fleeting glance at God's Word. If anything, the person, the hearer that James is talking about, looks closely at God's Word. The problem comes in the next part. In verse 24... After he has looked even closely at himself and goes away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. The problem is not with the gazing and the looking and the examining and the studying and the reading. The problem is that when all of that is said and done and the Bible is set to the side, the Bible now is out of sight and it's out of mind. That's the problem. This is the kind of person who will do devotions faithfully every morning so that they can start their day off on the right foot. But then once they take that first step outside of the house, there is no evidence at all that they have had God speaking to them and working on their heart and mind. This is the kind of person who approaches God's Word as something like inoculation or a vaccine right? A verse a day keeps the devil away. Or I read this to be inoculated from the effects of sin so that when I go out there and do my sinning, well, it's all okay. It's not really going to hurt me because I've had my Bible shot. And so James says, that the kind of people who approach the Scriptures this way, back up in verse 22, they are men and women, they are young adults, they are teenagers who deceive themselves. Sometimes in a very sophisticated way. How do they deceive themselves? In what way or in what sense? Well, I'm sure part of it is that they deceive themselves into thinking that because they have spent so much time in the Word that God is pleased and happy. Or that because they've spent so much time in the Word, it is obvious and apparent that they must be a mature Christian because only the most serious of Christians would spend all that time reading and studying.
I think it's the kind of deception that says, because I am regularly exposed to God's word, I must be safe in God's word. That's not what Jesus said. Hold your place here and go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words, see, there it is. It, there is the hearing. The hearing needs to be there. That's actually the first step. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who has built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. The danger of being regularly exposed to God's Word such that you are a sophisticated hearer, but not a doer, is such that you can deceive yourself into thinking that all is right, that all is well, that you have been reconciled to God through Christ, and you can comfortably, peaceably, move every day closer and closer to ultimate destruction and judgment. Edgewood, do you hear this? Right? We love, we love God's Word at Edgewood. We desire it, we demand it, right? We must have God's Word, otherwise what are we doing? But be careful that in all of your sermon listening, in all of your Bible reading, in all of your Bible studies, in all of your podcasts, that you are not deceiving yourself because you're being inundated through the ears with God's Word, but none of that filters out into transformed living. If we have any young theology lovers in here, let me make this appeal to you. If you love theology and you love reasoning through God's Word, but all of your theologizing and all of your reading and thinking only makes you a more argumentative person, your theology is either worthless or you're not doing it right. 
if all of your reading and listening, men and women, doesn't do anything in connection with the way that you conduct yourself in the workplace or in the classroom, if it doesn't change the way that you assess the philosophies of this age and the cultural trends, you need to consider that you are in danger of deceiving yourself into thinking that you have what you need when you may in fact have nothing. The issue is not listening to God's word. The issue is in limiting the word to the listening. If you love God's word, if you take seriously what God says in his word, you ought to find yourself killing sin on a regular basis. Not perfectly. None of us are going to be able to do that. And not in any way that you come to a place where you no longer have any more sin to kill. That's not going to happen. Well, not until we see Jesus. Then there'll be no more fighting then. But if the word of God falling on your ears, coming into your mind, is not going down, seeping into your heart so that your affections and desires are changed, so that you begin to hate the things that God hates and love the things that, God's, that God loves, that is a dangerous place to be. Self-deception is sometimes the worst kind of deception that you can fall prey to. So if hearing the word in and of itself is not enough, there has to be a hearing and there has to be a doing. This is part of what James gets to then in verse 25. He gives the positive contrast. As opposed to the one who just hears, who looks intently but then immediately forgets everything that he's read, doesn't take anything with him, out of sight, out of mind. Verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Did you notice the shift there in the terminology that James uses? He's been talking about the word, receiving the word. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer. Then in verse 25, what, what does he use? What's the, what's the term or the title that he uses as synonymous with the word? The law. One who looks intently at the perfect law. In context, that has to be synonymous with the word that he's talked about in the previous verses. Why, though, does he change? Why, why doesn't he just say, but one who looks intently at the perfect word? Why does he change it to say the perfect law? Well, I think there are a couple reasons. One, and, and probably most obvious... 
by referring to God's Word, even for us New Testament Christians, we New Covenant people, to refer to God's Word, even the New Testament, as God's law, conveys more clearly the idea that what God has spoken requires a response, right? A law that has been decreed, that has been put on the book, so to speak, obligates the citizen to live according to that law. So it's just one more step in going further to clarify the importance of what James is saying. That when you read God's Word, you ought to consider that this Word that is being given to you on any number of fronts or issues is a Word that is to be obeyed. But then the other thing that James does, he talks about those who look intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. Are law and liberty, do they go together? Okay? Nature's laws. A fish is never more free than when a fish is doing what God's law has decreed it to do, which is to swim in water. If a fish tries to assert his liberty and independence by stepping out of the water onto dry land, he may get what he thinks is more freedom, but what he ultimately will get is death. The fish is far better off living a full life, living a happy life under the law of nature. That's what he's been made to do. Christian, your life will never be better or happier or more secure than when you live according to the way that God has decreed you are to live. I don't think this is accidental when James says the perfect law. Hold Psalm 19, doesn't he? Well, you judge when we get there. Psalm 19, start at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does James say? The one who looks intently at the perfect law. But keep reading. Listen to the glowing praise that the psalmist offers concerning God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. All of those statements pertain to God's Word. All of them. Just different words Different descriptions, synonyms pointing to the same thing. The law, the precepts, the commands. They're delightful. Verse 10. 
They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And then notice, moreover, by them, by your commandments, by your word, by your laws, moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Where is the reward? Is the reward in hearing the perfect law? Not according to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says the reward comes in the doing, in the keeping. Now, just to make sure that we are not starting to veer off into any kind of works-based salvation, right? One of the things that you will notice about Psalm 19 is that before the psalmist gets to the point where he says that in keeping them, in doing them, in obeying is great reward, everything that he says about the law, about God's word, is what it does to the inner man. How it works on the heart, how it works on the mind, as if to say, when the word of God does its work on people, this is what happens. They find it delightful, they find a new taste for God's word, and they love to do it. God does that. That is perfectly in line with what James said earlier in chapter 1, verse 18, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth, that is, He gave us birth by the word of truth. God, through the power of the Spirit, uses His Word to make dead people alive. He raises us from the dead. He takes out a heart of stone, and He puts in a new beating heart. A new heart, by the way, that Jeremiah tells us is going to be imprinted with the very law of God so that we will not have to have people lecturing us all the time about how we need to do God's Word how we need to know it, but we will want to do it because our heart beats for obedience. Such that James says in this passage, back in verse 25, that the man who looks intently at this perfect law, the law of liberty, and continues in it, he abides in it. He lives in it. Having become an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. What is that? What, what is the blessing that James is talking about? It, it could be that what James is saying here in fact, it, I don't know, it might be likely even. But what James has in mind is, is that in the mere act of obedience, God continues to give his blessing as a reward, as a display, a show of his favor to his sons and daughters who are living to please him. He, he loves to see that. And so as a demonstration of his love, he, he blesses them. Well, blesses them in what way? Well, I mean, the options are almost limitless. 
peace, happiness, joy, provision of need. I mean, any of those things could be true. Right? If that's what James is after then, then, then what he basically is saying is, your obeying God's word brings with it a blessing in pretty close connection. You, you might almost say, not quite instantaneous, but you, you get the idea, right? You obey and you're blessed. All right? There's another element that needs to be considered here which might actually be more in line with what James thinks about when he thinks of the Christian life. If you go back in chapter 1 and you look at verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. That word blessed in verse 12 is the same word that James uses in verse 25 when he says this man will be blessed, he will be happy in what he does. But notice in verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In verse 12, when does the blessing, when does the believer come into the blessing? When do you receive the crown of life? At the end of your race. When you're crowned with the rewards for being a faithful servant. I wonder if part of what James is doing here is not only encouraging believers to live right now every day, continuously, faithfully, in obedience. Hear the word, respond to the word. But I wonder if he also isn't thinking about the fact that one of the pitfalls that threatens our long-term obedience and faithfulness in pursuing Christ is the fact that so oftentimes in this Christian life, our joy, the fullness of it anyway, the reward is delayed. Think of Psalm 73 with Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But I came close to stumbling. Why? Why did, why did Asaph almost lose his faith? Because I looked around and I saw the prosperity of the wicked and I began to conclude, surely in vain I have kept my hands pure. I've obeyed God's law for nothing. You ever feel that way in the Christian life? You ever wonder, where's the payoff? If God is so happy with my obedience... Why is my life so hard? Has anyone ever been there? Right? If you haven't been, you will be. Right? It's inevitable that if you walk with the Lord long enough, you will have those experiences. If there is such a great reward in obedience, why am I losing all of my friends? Why am I being passed over for promotions? Why do I seem to have this mark? Why am I being ostracized? Why am I the weirdo now? Right? 
Where's the benefit? Where's the reward? Where's the blessing in obedience? Let me give you two brief answers to that. Number one, Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he goes on to say, I believe this is John 14. He goes on to say, and the one who keeps my commandments, my father will love him, I will love him, we will come and make our home with him. We will disclose ourselves to him. Here is the first and immediate reward that comes with obedience to God's word. You get more of Christ. So when you sing songs like Christ is mine forevermore, you ought to be hearing Christ is mine now and always. And because I have Christ, if I have nothing else, I don't need it. Sometimes the obedience that we engage in in following Christ when it strips everything away is to convince us of the fact that those other things that we thought our life depended on, that we desperately wanted, we don't actually need those things. We need Christ. But the other answer, where is the reward, where is the blessing, is to say that the reward still lies in the future. Listen, on the authority of God's word, if God does not make good on his promises to us to reward us for our obedience in our times of testing, God is a liar. Because God is not a liar, and he has promised that he will reward his people, you can be certain that every moment and act of obedience is seen and known and accounted for. And that not only will God be good and kind and generous to bless you with more of him, with greater communion and fellowship and intimacy, but he also holds out endless delight in the life to come to say that all of this time of testing, all of this hardship, all of these sacrifices that you have made, when everything is said and done, they will look like they were no sacrifices at all compared to the reward. What are you going to do? You're going to stop obeying and just become a hearer and miss all of that? You're going to lose Christ for temporary ease? You're going to cash in your reward for dollar store trinkets in this world? God forbid. Enjoy, God has been good and kind to his people to give us life in his word and to promise that his life will continue to grow and multiply and bear fruit as we hear and respond to his word. God, keep us faithful. Let's pray.
Father, as a demonstration of your power and your faithfulness to your people, would you cause your word, both in its preaching, in its reading, in its studying, in our meditation, in our reflecting on it, would you cause your word to be effective in our hearts and minds? May it transform us more and more into the image of Christ, the living word, so that we come to look and sound and act more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we would ask that you would be kind enough to bless us with the privilege of seeing your word bringing new people to life out of death and out of darkness. That you would give us wisdom to know how to disciple and encourage one another so that we would not just be merely hearers or enthusiastic listeners to the word, but that we would delight to do your will. Perfect us, Father, we ask, in our obedience, for our joy and your glory. Amen.